Hey, everybody. Welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. Today, we're going to talk about Elon Musk's adventures in Twitter. Just kidding. <laughs> that was last week and the week before that and the week before that. Anyways, we're in the green room. We're going to talk, say hi to our guests and see, talk about where everyone's coming from, what's going on and what's new. So let's start with Mark. Mark, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? I'm calling in from New York City, from downtown Manhattan. And we're going to be talking about my new book, The Synergy Solution, How Companies Win the Mergers and Acquisitions Game and the problems and the solutions uh, around mergers. Very, very cool. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Sandy, where are you calling in from? What are you talking about? Oh, Ray, I am actually calling in from sunny Scottsdale today, getting ready for the weekend. And I would love to dish on Web3, everyone's favorite subject, I think. <laughs> An amazing subject that we're all talking about. All right, Kim, where are we calling in from? I am calling in from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I wish I was in sunny Scottsdale. And I'm here with, with Kate. And, you know, we want to talk a little bit about the partnership between IT and marketing because we think it's just so important and how we partner together and work together to navigate the last few years. So excited All to right. share some lessons. Kate, where are you calling in from? I am calling in from beautiful Duxbury, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Awesome. All right. East Coast strong. Here we go. All right. Back to you, Hannah. Let's start. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the Ray's regular television technology and business contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, co-founder, Bala Afshar. He's also the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce, but he's the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. If you haven't read it, definitely get a copy of it. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting keynoting or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking at on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and, of course, posting his insightful analyses on ZDNet. But like we always say, it's not about us. It's about our awesome guests. And who do we have today to kick it off? How lucky are we to have two power couple thought leaders on our show? We're, we're, I'm, 
I'm going to start with introducing Kim Salem-Jackson, who's the Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Akamai, leading Akamai's global marketing efforts, including brand purpose, corporate communications, product marketing, field marketing, digital marketing, and customer enablement programs. Kim's a data-driven global marketing executive whose 20-year career, Tim, Kim must have started at 15, <laughs> has been focused on activating marketing as growth engine, amplifying marketing impacts on business. Kim helped lead the launch and adoption of Akamai's in enriched mission and purpose, driving a commitment to shared values both in market and within the company. You can follow her on Twitter at ksalem09. Welcome, Kim, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. And, cool. and with Kim, we have uh, Kate uh, Prody, SVP CIO at Akamai Technologies. Uh, as CIO, Kate oversees Akamai's information technology organization, responsible for business transformation, including global strategy, development, operational applications, and IT infrastructure. Kate, Ray, Kate, Kate may have been employee number three. Kate joined Akamai <laughs> in 1999. The company was founded in 1998. 23 years. Uh, and has led uh, a long and distinguished career at a company uh, leading the transformation of Akamai's business process within, with an emphasis on flexibility, agility, and user experience. Those, those, those are such incredible pillars for successful CIOs. Kate co-chairs the Executive Women's Network at Akamai and is a member of the board of directors for a nonprofit organization, Delta Projects, which supports and empowers people with intellectual challenges. Welcome, Kate and Kim, to the Shrub TV. Thank, Thank you. you. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Hey, we're really excited to have you here. And as many folks know about Akamai, I mean, you guys power, make sure that the internet is up and running. The There's world. so many different uh, worlds. <laughs> yeah, for so many folks around the world. And, you know, and, and one of the interesting stats that we've been looking at and, of course, aggregating is that internet usage is up anywhere between 60 to 70%, depending who's measuring that cybersecurity tax, that, you know, just the need to actually go into more digital uh, operations, digital business models. That's been driving a lot of growth. And so we want to take some time to actually talk to you guys about what's going on, um, what's happening out in the market, but more importantly about this partnership between IT and marketing. So I'm going to start with Kim real quick. Well, Kim, how did IT and marketing partner to pivot and transform for employees and customers? I mean, this is like a tough thing. Most companies struggle to actually try to get to this relationship to be able to work with each other. And so I'll start with you, Kim. Sure. Um, uh, it, it is a tough thing. But first, I have to say internally, Kate and I might now have to call ourselves the power couple. So thank you. <laughs> you are. <laughs> I think that's how we'll introduce ourselves in meetings. Um, <laughs> well, for, first of all, um, thanks for having us. And, you know, we all know that great marketing happens at that intersection point between art and science. But the mm -hmm. secret to success, I believe, lies in those insights that you get from great data and a best-in-class rev tech stack. So as CMO, this um, paradigm makes the partnership with IT and my power couple friend, Kate, that much more critical, which is why we're excited to be here. So, you know, with that, with that backdrop, you know, what do we do at Akamai to pivot and adapt? So, you know, first we listened to the marketplace and our customers. Mm -hmm. And that led us to reimagine our rev tech stack, our go-to-market, our data, our digital innovations, and even our narrative. And I think we'll talk a little later about um, purpose. But when I say listen, I mean, we monitored those leading indicators. They were like gold to us because if you waited for the lagging indicators, you're pretty much dead in the water. And so constantly looking for those green shoots. 
Um, the next thing we did, like everybody in the world, we pivoted to a digital first strategy. That certainly wasn't anything new, but we focused on making those digital experiences emulate physical experiences because we quickly realized, and I'm sure all of you did too, that the world was so hungry for a human experience or a micro experience. So we wanted to deliver that to the audiences we serve just, you know, versus just online content. Um, we also got a lot smarter about our data and tried to get a really deep understanding of um, customer behavior and their journey to us and with us. Because otherwise it was a dark funnel and the dark funnel makes me crazy. Got to shine some light. So you know, that resulted in us replatforming our website, investing more in search, investing more in data science to predict that that next best actions for customers and you know offer those personalized experiences. And then fast forward to today, I think digital, we know what I think digital's core to our lives. So without throwing out a thousand buzzwords, I think just to look at things like metaverse and NFTs, like it or hate it, I think there's going to be a shift in how people will interact with technology forever. You know, people invest their time and their money in these experiences. And as a marketer, and with my partner in IT, I'm always trying to stay ahead of those trends, meet people where they are, let them choose their own journey. So, um, you know, only with technology and a partnership with IT, I think, is that possible. So that's my I'm going to long... jump in here. I'm going to jump here for when Harry met Sally. So I don't know, Kate, what do you think from your angle? What did it look like? <laughs> so I think, um, you know, in in my role, I have many customers um, and so we are, you know, we're sometimes in the unenviable situation of trying to make everybody happy. And when I say everybody, I mean down to the individual employee and customer, which is really hard to do. So um, it's it's very, very um, helpful to have a great partner uh, within the business. And so as an IT professional, we look at ourselves as strategic business partners. We're not just the, you know, the techie folks that are kind of stitching things together. We really are trying to partner um, at a at a very different level with, you know, with a level of business acumen, with a level of, you know, sort of consultative approach so that we can help our business stakeholders get everything that they need to be most efficient and effective, but do it in a way that fits into our ecosystem um, the most, you know, sort of smoothly without creating any issues down the road and maintaining um, really just a nice balance of giving folks what they absolutely need by while also maintaining um, sort of the balance of the, the infrastructure of IT. Um, I, I do have to pivot a little bit though and talk about the pandemic and some of the things that you brought up because it really was um, for mm -hmm. IT, you know, we're in a very interesting situation where we are a security company, Akamai is a security company. And um, one of the things that we do is we are our customer one. So we are implementing all of Akamai's services on our own networks, including our security services. And we had really just embarked on um, this Akamai on Akamai project around um, you know, network security, journey to zero trust. And so we just, we had to accelerate that you know, tenfold. When everybody went remote, we sort of had to kind of get going, getting our enterprise security up and running, making sure we had good, what we call enterprise threat protection, which is um, really protecting our employees from doing silly things like clicking on phishing links or um, malicious, you know, uh, links on, on valid websites. So uh, we, you know, we worked really hard to get that done quickly. And then as we partnered with, 
with our friends in sales and marketing, you know, we really came to understand very quickly that our customers were feeling the same pain. So we worked closely with our customers to help them sort of build out a blueprint to get themselves to a place where they could manage all of this remote work um, securely. Um, and then at the same time, obviously, there was the challenge of just, as you said, this ridiculous increase in Internet traffic. Um, you know, customers were, they, we were seeing people streaming, people gaming that have never gamed in their entire lives. We saw moms on TikTok with their daughters and, you know, it was just like insanity. So, you know, as we were trying to support our customers through that by, you know, deploying stuff, deploying servers as quickly as you can, offloading origin traffic um, to keep people just up and running. We also had a very interesting um, sort of um opposite effect to some of our, our loyal, loyal customers were seeing the exact opposite. I mean, think about, you know, airlines and hospitality mm -hmm. industry, they were losing business and they were losing customers and they were losing internet, you know, their internet traffic was, was grinding down to halt. So we had to work with them as well to say, Hey, we'll give you time and we'll give you room to get mm -hmm. back on your feet. And, you know, that's that whole idea of, of really um, leading with, with humanity, both within your employee base and with your customers, um, definitely has reaped huge rewards for us. Thank that is you. amazing. I love that. I love that story of empathy and generosity. And the fact that, you know, the Akamai superpower is, was this ability to decentralize uh, delivery of services. And in a light switch, about, uh, you know, two years and two months ago, I guess March, March of 2020, the world went decentralized, digital only for many, uh, so the pressure on CIOs to maintain an infrastructure that could scale and be secure and be decentralized was incredibly challenging. If you were, if you were, you know, a, a digital native company and, and, and technology company, I suppose easier for us. Um, but at your illustrious career, Kate, 23 years. I mean, no kidding. The company was built on your shoulder. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so sure fun, you right? worked. I'm sure you worked with many CMOs during the 22 years. How nice is it to have a CMO that's passionate about analytics uh, <laughs> and really wants to bring science to art of marketing? That that's got to be refreshing. I'm not saying I'm not suggesting other CMOs weren't uh, equally passionate, but I know Kim is absolutely data driven. So that can you give advice to to uh, to, to to CIOs how they can connect? with data-driven CMOs and build this uh, power couple relationship that you have at Akamai? Yeah, I mean, my advice is to approach it from a business and a strategy perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you need to have the sort of technical underpinnings to understand how to bring all the data together in a way that's meaningful and useful and you know on demand and automated and all of that good stuff. But it really is about understanding the business what is it they are trying to achieve? What information um, do, you know, do, do CMOs like Kim need to, to most effectively get their work done, reach customers, reach prospects, you know, understand how we're doing, how's our website doing, um, and how, you know, how can we best attract our, our customers? It's really about um, you know, approaching it from a, a business perspective and not necessarily just about the bits and bytes of technology. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, you know, this partnership that you guys had, I mean, this is Kim Stevenson on the show. And she said, <laughs> there are no IT projects. There are just business projects. And I thought that was really okay. great because, you know, the language of business is finance and you need to understand 
you know, it's not about the bits and bytes. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, you know, we learned so much from our guests and this is another great example. I mean, you know, the, the way you guys are putting, putting this together in terms of partnership. I mean, think about the, when you think about the shifts that are here, right? I mean, we're in what we call the, the great refactoring, right? The way we're work, working, um, you know, where, when we work, where we work, even why we work, right? The business models are changing from digital channels to digital business models to real digital monetization. And, and more importantly, you know, the way we look at work-life balance or the way we look at, you know, mission and purpose are all changing. And so as you adjust through this change, I mean, other things that you two have discovered along the way that you say, this is kind of how you adapt to that change. This is kind of keep to business continuity while you move forward. And, and more importantly, this is how you transform at the same time. I mean, none of these are easy concepts. No, no. No. Kate, do you want to? Okay, oh, go sure. ahead, go, Kate. So. I, I could go, well, I'll start with your why. Um, okay. So I, it's funny, you know, when I took over as CMO about a year ago, you know, I didn't do the typical playbook, change the logo and the website and the colors. You know, I wanted to kind of leverage what we had because I thought it was incredible and launch some big campaigns so more people knew about my because sometimes we're the best kept secret. And every idea we had kept falling short of greatness because we were missing our why. And so mm. my new CMO playbook a year ago, if you asked me, was I planning on like redefining our purpose and our mission, I would have said absolutely positively not. But what became so clear to me, and you know, I wish I could take credit for having a crystal ball, was that we as a company needed to define our why and what we made possible for the world versus just what we did. So mm. we embarked on this purpose journey. And when I tell you I was naive, I thought I knew what purpose was. I had absolutely no idea. And we worked, uh, I really did, I read books, I read articles, I interviewed people. And, you know, it was really about finding that intersection point between our strengths and the impact we could have on the world. And for us to be able to articulate that, I think was one of the most powerful things we could do, wow. particularly in the middle of the great resignation where, you know, jobs were readily available, people were rethinking their careers. And, you know, if they didn't work for a company that really stood for something, then they, they didn't want to stay. And I think marketers today have a huge responsibility um, on just the traditional job description to really be people ambassadors. You know, I, over the last six months, I think I said a thousand times, one of my success criteria for a campaign was as much about, um, attracting and retaining our talent and making them feel excited and empowered as it was about, you know, acquiring new customers and increasing our ROI and, and conversion rates. So um, I just view the role of purpose and, you know, marketers really driving that connection point is critical as bringing in the next dollar to, to the company. And, you know, that comes with the partnership with IT too, because it, it takes, an omni-channel approach to amplify that throughout the org. And so working with Kate has been uh, fantastic. That's awesome. I love it. Kate? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to follow that. I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it much better. I mean, um, I think, you know, Ray, you use the word adaptable and, and that's exactly right. I think if we've learned mm. nothing, it's that we need to continue to be adaptable. And, you know, um, you know, I've learned that human beings are just, incredibly adaptable and resilient. And, you know, you, we went from day, you know, one day you're in the office, the next day you're, you're completely remote. And I think 
um, in that we, you know, in all of the sort of ups and downs of, of the year that I just described, I think we had the most productive year in, or one of the most productive years in Akamai's history through all of that. So it just shows that, um, you know, and as a company, we, we, we tried very hard to be, um, empathetic and flexible and give people the room that they needed and the flexibility that they needed throughout this really difficult time. Um, and it, it reaped its rewards. I mean, we, again, got it back tenfold. Um, people are, you know, not only just so appreciative of all of the flexibility, but they were so much more productive. And I think what we've learned now is that the horse is out of the barn. You know, we've mm. learned now how to work in an environment where we can be flexible. And if we don't continue to offer that flexibility to our employees, you know, the companies that don't get that have, you know, have really lost a huge opportunity, especially in this war for talent um, to continue to enable that. And through technology, because again, the human connection is so important and technology is the connector very often um, in the absence of being able to connect uh, face to face. So um that's amazing. Yeah, interesting times, you know, move forward. We're, we've, we, uh, we got to continue on this path. You can't go backwards. There's no put the horse back in the barn. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Kim and Kate, thank you so much for being here. Kim Salen Jackson, EVP and CMO, Akamai Technologies, and Kate Prouty, SVP and CIO, uh, Akamai Technologies. Thanks so much for being here. And of course, uh, thank you for being on the show. Thanks thank for you. having us. Thank you both. Leading with purpose being flexible, empathetic, agile. Um, Akamai is lucky to have two extraordinary, two extraordinary executives. This next guest is, is a Hall of Fame technologist and, and business leader. It's our pleasure to have Sandy Carter, who's the Senior Vice President and uh, uh, Channel Chief at Unstoppable Domains. Sandy is responsible for driving new partnerships and integrations for Web3. This is what we're going to talk about. Blockchain and NFTs, white hot technologies. Sandy's mission is to onboard the world onto a decentralized web by building digital identity platform. Previously, Sandy was vice president for public sector partners at this small company called AWS or, or Amazon. <laughs> During her tenure, Sandy grew AWS ecosystem rank by over 45%. Sandy was co-founder and CEO of Startups in Silicon Valley. Sandy is the chairman of the board of Girls in Tech and an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon University, Silicon Valley. Sandy is also the author of Extreme Innovation. She's the founder of Unstoppable Woman of Web3. I love that. Uh, she's award-winning executive. We only have a 20-minute segment, so I cut all her awards down to just a few to mention, uh, including member of the Fortune magazine, Most Powerful Woman, CNN Top 10 Most Powerful Woman in Technology, Forbes Top Digital Influencer, 2022 Top Channel Chief, and much, much more. Please go read her bio. I'm not sure if Sandy ever sleeps. She's just continuously innovating. You can follow Sandy on Twitter at Sandy underscore Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R. -E Welcome, Sandy, Hall of Fame technologist to Disrupt TV. Sorry, I think you have your mute. Yeah. <laughs> I am. And I said I was going to add to my resume now that I am on Disrupt TV, which is such <laughs> a phenomenal moment. Truly, I've waited years to be on your show. So Shame on you. us. Shame on, Shame on us. Me. Thank you. You should have been on episode one. I don't know what. It, it, massive oversight. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Honestly, thank you both for having me. I really am honored to be here. 
Yeah, you know, we're really excited to have you here. And you're one of the hottest spaces, a, a space that both Bala and I track very carefully, um, and which is really this emerging area of what we call the metaverse and the metaverse economy, right? And, and as you know, and we've, sp- you know, we've spoken about this, I mean, it's, it's more than just glasses, it's more than just the worlds, it's more than NFTs, it's more than the DAOs, it's more than the Web3 infrastructure, something big is about to happen. And it must have been big enough for you to say, hey, I'm going to leave AWS, the small little company, you know, where, where I've been like kicking butt. Um, why? So what, what got you excited about the space and what got you excited about the company? Unstoppable. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, you know, hats off to all my colleagues at AWS. I it couldn't, I couldn't have worked for a better company in the entire world. I learned so much from Amazon Web Services. Um, You know, when I was in my last role in AWS, I was there for almost five years. I was able to work with customers on blockchain. And as I was working with customers and partners on blockchain, I just got this bug. I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, it's a trusted network. It's uh, it's storing all this data. It's immutable. It's not. It was just such an aha moment for me. So then what I started doing is a couple of side projects. You know, I bought some crypto. I got rugged. Crypto was stolen. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. Yeah, oh, no. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And I All of us have experienced this. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, know. It's part of the, I think it's part of the rite of passage into yeah. the first yeah. economy, yeah. right? Um, and I just got so, uh, so addicted to it. So um, I had a couple of Web3 companies reach out to me. Some of them, them, them concerned me. One CEO said, I'll set up a Swiss bank account for you. And I was like, I'm out of here. I'm not doing that one. Um, but then my, um, sorry, Matt Gald, who's the CEO uh, and founder of Unstoppable Domains came. He said, I'm going to fly up to Seattle. I'm going to take you to dinner. Just come and sit down, break bread with me, and I'll tell you what we're doing. And, and that was really the moment I decided Unstoppable was for me. Um, Unstoppable Domains, we, we have domains that are Web3 domains with superpowers but those domains act as your digital identity. And that's what got me so excited, an identity you could travel with you. You didn't have to log in separately. It was on the blockchain, decentralized, and just so much power and so much potential. So after that dinner, uh, I was pretty much sold to come to Unstoppable. And that's why I'm here today. He must be a great uh, entrepreneur, CEO. I, I don't personally know him, but the fact that he could pull you out of AWS, because again, you were doing legendary work, growing the ecosystem, growing the partnerships, uh, leading events and kicking off and just an extraordinary ambassador of, 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 for Amazon, for AWS. Um, Ray started the conversation talking about, you know, some of these emerging technologies that are dominating the new cycle from the better to crypto to NFTs. Can you, um, uh, assume my 18-year-old uh, daughter, who's a uh, freshman at Bentley, is here, and she wants to learn about Web3. Is there a way you can help me better explain to her, <laughs> you know, what's Web3? Why does it matter? Uh, and w- why she should take some courses at Bentley on Web3 if they offer it? Yeah, definitely introduce her <laughs> to me because I, I want to do that for sure. Um, this is the way I describe Web3. If you want to know in one word the difference between Web2 and Web3, the difference is ownership. And what I mean by that is Web3 does decentralize the internet, 
but it's really the goal of that decentralization that matters. It allows for individual ownership of your identity and your personal data. And from what I've seen, that's enough to get so many people so excited. So imagine, you know, instead of, I, I was counting last night, guys. Uh, so Vala and Ray, I have 289 passwords today. Oh my. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I, I got a little bit overboard, I know. But imagine, that's in the Web 2 world. In the Web 3 world, I can take that, that digital identity. And I can use that to sign into a DeFi app, um, mm -hmm. decentralized finance app. Um, I can use that same login and password to sign into a metaverse. Like last night I was in Atlantis metaverse, which is pretty, pretty awesome. I can use that same ID to sign into a Decentraland game or a sandbox fashion show. Um, and so for me, that is so much power. All that data stays with me. It's owned by me. Hmm. And therefore I decide if I'm going to sell Salesforce, you know, data about me or Facebook about me, I get to decide what data I share, what data I don't share, what it's worth to me. And that to me is the biggest, the biggest difference. Web two to web three is about ownership, ownership of that digital identity and ownership of that data. That's what gets me fired up. Yeah, and you That's also do true. that for no sorry to follow. I was you also do that for payments as well, because you also do it for identity and payments. Talk about the payment side because the payment side is kind of exciting as well. Because now that you've identity, we can transact, we can share, we have you know provenance of you know data, we understand what's happening. So pop it or do. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I am so excited about that too, because we, you know, I, I always say we have both elements of the flywheel. One is that domain that Ray mentioned, and that domain links into your crypto wallet, your email. So unlike a domain in Web 2, which basically is used for your website, domain in Web 3, I love to say, has superpowers because it not only enables you to do a Web 3 website, but it also enables you to transact business, to pay for things. So no longer, if I'm paying with crypto, do I have to type in that horrendously long set of letters and numbers, I can do sandy.nft, which you see up here on the screen right now. Um, you know, well, I don't know if you have your domain yet. If you don't, you have to let me give it to you. Let's you know, go do it. Have, <laughs> yeah, Ryan, I need to get on this yeah, incredible train. <laughs> and so then you can use that domain to pay for stuff. So what that does for the person is it makes it really easy. It reduces the mistakes that you might make. So last night I was actually on the phone with a VC, no mind you, who accidentally transferred $52,000 worth of ETH to the wrong address because she oh typed in oh one character off. Oh, I'm, so I'm frightened. Of, <laughs> and she's a, she's a tech woman, right? She knows what she's doing. Um, and so had she had, you know, her name dot crypto or her name dot NFT, she could have just used that to ease that pain. And for the for the partners that integrate with us as well, it's great for them because they're actually building support teams to answer questions from people who accidentally mistype something in. Like what can you like? There's really nothing you can do in the crypto world. Right. It's all on the chain. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. There's no helpline to call into. No, so. no, no. So and the process is not as. The pro See, that's what's, you know, when we, we've had a number of folks talk about, uh, you know, when will we reach tipping point? When will crypto 
becomes more widely accepted NFT Web3. And the fact that you can transfer 17 Ethereum I'm at 52,000, about 17, they're roughly yep. 3,000 and change yesterday. That's unbelievable. One wrong ASCII letter number and gone. It's 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 gone, uh, and that's 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 frightening. Um, and well, that that's why we are the number one domain provider in all of Web three today because we make it so easy, yeah. so you don't make that mistake. And yeah. we adhere to that Web three one word ownership. You also don't rent it from us or subscribe to it from us. You buy it; it's yours. You it's own yours. it. Yeah. So if you guys, how fast how fast are you seeing adoption? Are you seeing just folks? Oh, it's, it, it, we're at 2.2 million domains today, 2.2 wow. million. Wow. We are by far the fastest and that's going to continue to grow with our roadmap and what we're working on. We are, I just, I can't tell you how excited I am about the, um, the growth, but also, you know, we, we heard earlier uh, from your two speakers talk about purpose. Um, this is also a lot of purpose. We are the gateway to web three for many people. Um, we are protection against losing a lot of money. We we have a purpose that I think is so important. We're protecting your data. Data is mm. yours. It's a pur it's a purposeful mission, uh, one that I really love. I love you it. Know, Ray, I'm not going to get I'm not going to be able to get Vala. I couldn't get it on Twitter. By the time I signed, it was gone, and the person never uses it. They just they just have Vala. We gotta get Vala <laughs> NFT. We gotta get Vala yeah. NFT. I'll, 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 I'll and I'll, I'll go right. for R NFT. If we can find R NFT, that'll be fun. Yeah. Okay. I'll work on it. I'll work yeah. on it. But I, if we're live, though, right? Probably someone's out there right now trying to buy it. Oh. Yeah, I, we'll see. Right. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead, Ray. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just no, I just, no, no. You know. This is this is super exciting, right? And 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 the other aspect of this is, you know, I mean, you've been there. You've been the Web two O to Web three O transition. What are some ahas that you just go? God, these are things I should have known. Mm. I wish if, if people are just picking this up, here's things that you should know right Good away question. that would help people understand, you know, how to navigate this because we're, we're doing web two to web three transition. We're doing 2D to 3D. We're doing centralization and decentralization. These are big chips. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, one of the big ahas, Ray, for me wasn't actually the technology, but it was the community aspect of web three. Um, the Web3 community, you know, they use this term WAGMA, which is we're all going to make it. And that is really the mantra. It's really not about I, Sandy, I'm going to kick your butt or I, Unstoppable Domains, I'm going to do better than everyone else. Everybody really jumps in and really supports each other, really wants to do the right thing for the community, the business. It's so different than Web2. And that means like, when roadmaps are created, right? At AWS, we would get feedback from customers. We're very customer obsessed. Sure. We create a roadmap and we'd unveil it, right? And people are like, wow, that's coming. Here, the roadmap is actually done hand in hand with the community. Many DAOs vote on what's in your roadmap. Yeah, so when yeah. you unveil it, it's you and the community. Um, you're now not a user, you're a member. So you have buy-in and and, you know, that means that the communities that you choose to join, whether that's an NFT community or even support for a company, you're really buying into more than the tech. You're buying into the values of that company. Um, that's one of the reasons I started Unstoppable Women of Web3. I wanted Unstoppable to stand for Web3 for all, not to be restricted to only certain sets of people, 
but for everybody. Um, and those elements were really important. I did not realize that when I came over, how powerful the community element was. Wow. And you came from an incredibly powerful community I at know. AWS. And so, you know, someone who's, you know, for last five, six years on a rocket ship, hyper growth uh, company, uh, incredibly influential company, one that's also purpose-driven, one that really appreciates scale, one that has a mantra of working backwards. In other words, you know, starting with the customer needs and, and inventing and innovating backwards. Uh, we had uh, Jeff Bezos, former chief of staff, Colin Breyer on our show, and he wrote the book, Working Backwards, and how that whole culture of writing memos and being disciplined and having clarity of thought and deep understanding how does that translate to this world that's being invented in real time? Like, are there any similarities that you see in both worlds? Certainly strong communities is one, but um, what about the, the lack of the machinery that Amazon had that you led and you helped grow? Does that discipline and, 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 and um, scale and, 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 and uh, spirit of innovation exist where you are? It must. I, or you wouldn't be there. I think I know the answer already. But what are some of the similarities in, in these two spaces that you're in now? Yeah, I mean, um, well, one similarity is that we're always working back from the community. So not okay. from the customer, but working backwards from the community. Very similar. In fact, uh, Unstoppable Domains is a big fan club for AWS. We use a very similar interviewing process with the loop. Uh, we have people write a narrative. So we're very similar in that way. I would, I would say, though, that um, a big difference is the, uh, the rate and pace of change. Um, for Web3 and the metaverse and the metaverse economy, you've got to stay on top of it every day. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about the cloud, like, uh, Bala, you know that Salesforce is built on AWS. It does change, but I don't have to read, like, I don't actually have to dedicate time every day to find out what's happening. Sure. Here I do. Like, the innovation is occurring that quickly. So we're changing things and moving much faster than I had in AWS. I know that's hard to believe. Yeah. One of yeah. the fastest innovating companies in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, again, not just our technology that's innovating. It's the ecosystem, that whole yeah. ecosystem um, that's innovating and that's moving at the same time. Um, I would say that other similarities are, you know, that purpose-driven value mm. system. I think that's a very big similarity. Basing on certain technologies like blockchain, another, you know, big similarity, sure. AWS has a blockchain set of technologies as well. So that's a similarity. I would say also that the functional skill sets translate. Um, mm. So I had a ton of Web2 folks who, who are coming over to work with me now. And I look for those functional skills, the marketing skill, the technology skill, the sales skill, the business development skill, all of those come over and translate. You may have to tweak it a little bit, but definitely come over and translate as well. That's awesome. You're you know, so I courageous. I just, I just, no, I just think about. I'm on your show every day just to pump myself. <laughs> no, I, no, I'm just reflecting as you're speaking. I'm like an incredibly successful executive at an incredibly successful company, one of a handful of trillion dollar market cap companies. And true spirit of innovation pulled you towards this incredible uh, next chapter, which is, which is, it just takes incredible courage. And uh, it also speaks volumes about the technology and the community and what our future is going to be all about. 
I think as, as usual, you're 10 steps ahead of most of us. So congratulations to you. Well, and I would say, thank you. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much. Um, I would say I left my AWS team in great hands. My team was spectacular. So I know they're doing magnificent things over there. I would also say that we are hiring very rapidly and we're not having problems hiring either. Web3 is so popular. So I just was reading last night, um, the increase in Web3 developers between Web2 and Web3 have gone up by 61%. I know from your book, Ray, that that's one of the things you look for was just how many developers are coming over, how many engineers are coming over. And so, uh, so yeah, maybe I, maybe I help lead the pack in some of those areas, but the, the, the movement to Web3, this is why I know it's real. This is why I know we are all going to make it. Uh, I do believe very firmly that what we're doing is, um, you know, wh- whatever you call it, there's so many different names for it. It is real. I believe very firmly it is going to disrupt companies and markets, and it is creating a gazillion opportunities out there today. That's what I really believe. Are we early? Yes. I like to say we're in the dial-up phase of Web3 and the metaverse, Mm. but there is magic here. The future is here. Do you think every Web2 company today is going to get disrupted by a Web3 version of itself? Um, maybe a web three version of itself, or maybe they're going to have to disrupt themselves. And I can't, mm. you would not believe the number of web two companies because I worked at Amazon, almost all of my old customers and my old partners are reaching out and they're like, we can't be left behind. <laughs> and because of the community aspect, they're like, we don't want to make a mistake because we see web two companies coming in, making a mistake, and then the community, you know, crucifying them for that. And so uh, if if the number of Web3, Web2 companies coming over is indication, I think it's going to be interesting. I was also talking to a Janet, who's chairman of the board for Deloitte. Yeah. Uh, her fastest growing practice is her blockchain Web3 practice, wow. not for Web3 companies, for Web2 companies. Web two companies. Wow. When you're Web seeing two that transition, companies. I mean, getting to Web3 libraries and dApps is very different. The smart contracts are kind of important because it's kind of the engine. The nodes and the Web3 providers are all over the place. And of course, wallets, like everyone's trying to figure that out. Wallets, contracts, wallets. nodes, right? Yep. I mean, it's all those things. And it's, it's a very different way of thinking. But hey, Sandy, thank you so much for being here today. Um, you're setting some light uh, to what, what's going on out here in the world. And more importantly, really congratulations on all the success. So. Thank you for being a trailblazer. Thank you. And thank you for having me on Disrupt TV. It's been our awesome. pleasure. <laughs> all right, Bob, we have to get our NFT. Ray, we got to rebrand this to Web3 Disrupt. I don't know. We got <laughs> at least get our .NFT or .ETH. Or, you know, we got to, well, I got to speak for myself, not, not you, but I'm behind. Yeah, I'm okay, there. I, I gotta get going. let's talk about an incredibly important topic, one that I experienced myself uh, prior to joining Salesforce. Mark Soror is author of Synergy Solutions and Deloitte U.S. lead for M&A and restructuring. Mark is a U.S. leader in Deloitte's M&A and restructuring practice, where he joined in 2008 to launch the M&A strategy practice. Mark has advised senior executive teams on hundreds of transactions over 25 years, 
from strategy and diligence through post-merger integration. Previously, Mark built the deal strategy group at PwC and was global leader of the M&A practice at the Boston Consulting Group. Mark has taught M&A at Wharton School uh, and for 30 years and at NYU Stern School Executive MBA program. He's the author of uh, M&A uh, uh, The Synergy Trap. His new book is The Synergy Solution, How Companies Win the Merger and Acquisition Game. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark L. Soror, S-I-R-O-W-E-R. -E Welcome, Mark, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much, Ray and Vala. It's a delight to be here and a thrill to be living through this period of M&A activity. You know, Mark, we are testing a ton of M&As, and part of that is really when we think about what's going on, your hurdle rate is 15%. If you're not getting 15% in the marketplace, people and the boards are saying, hey, look, return some money, do some buybacks, dividends, or do a merger and acquisition. And people are trying to keep up with that. And this has been going on for quite some time. It's one of the biggest runs in M&A activity uh, probably in, in decades, right? So we've been sitting in this boom, and it's only going to continue. Um, when we put that into the backdrop, I mean, we're seeing 50%, more than less than 50% of deals delivered on promised value. I mean, what's going on with post-merger integration or what's happening? I mean, did they just get it wrong? Was it a culture thing? Was it a tech thing? Was it a business model thing? I mean, there's so many ways this could go wrong. Yeah, well, it's all of them. And uh, what we try to do in the Synergy Solution is bring topics like culture, strategy, valuation, change. and uh, while they're important topics, they're not standalone topics. They're intimately connected right from the very beginning. And you mentioned like M&A activity. We just had our fifth trillion dollar quarter uh, in wow. a row. And wow. one of the things that we saw in 2021, because we'd already been living through an extraordinary period of M&A activity by any historical measure. I mean, this is the biggest merger wave in industrial history. It's the fourth merger wave I've lived through. Um, is uh, 2021, we saw the large deals double. The, um, uh, the value of deals went up by 60%, but the volume of deals only went up by 26%. So why is that? Deals over a billion dollars doubled in 2021. And when we start to see that, we see the wave shape. And as a strategist, you say, well, what, is, what does a merger wave mean? It only, you only get a merger wave one of two ways. Either companies that hadn't been acquisitive start doing deals or deals that had been uh, companies that had been acquisitive start doing more or bigger ones. And that's what we're seeing. And in these sort of times at historically high market values, um, there's this injection of inexperience into the market, whether you've never done them before or now you're doing bigger deals. And so these are very, they're exciting times, but they're tumult tumultuous uh, because uh, you're putting up all this capital. You're paying it all up front before you can even touch the wheel. You mentioned post-merger integration. Uh, post-merger is the wrong time to do pre-merger planning. And, uh, you know, and, and that's the quote of the day. That's it. I mean, you know, and that, that is actually one of the themes of the book. It's a connected end to end experience, intimately connected, that starts at the very beginning. And just to go a little further, um, we think of capital uh, as luxurious. In other words, capital implies promises. It has a cost. So we counsel executives uh, while time is on your side, because once you start negotiating a deal, and you're maybe a month away from signing and then you're two or three months away from close, yeah. things get moving really quickly. And the co that cost of capital clock starts ticking right at close. So, you know, we, we caution executives at, at, you know, at these times to treat capital like it's luxurious. It's expensive to touch. It has a cost. 
And so when you think about capital that way, there's smart things to do with capital and less smart things to do with capital, which means M&A is about growth, but more important, it's about choices. You've got to make difficult choices about what's most important for the growth of your business or businesses. You know, what are your priority pathways for growth and what's the landscape of opportunities uh, along those pathways so that you're making careful choices about what you want and why and how you're going to deliver the value uh, once that cost of capital clock starts ticking. In your book, uh, Synergy Solutions, you studied uh, deal performance of uh, over a thousand deals. Um, when you look at these deals, what, what, what do companies often overlook when it comes to the due diligence process? Uh, again, I, my company was acquired by a competitor, equal size company, which actually mm -hmm. in my uh, experience made it much more difficult mm -hmm. to make decisions. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I recall the due diligence process, I always felt we just didn't have enough time data um, uh, and mutual understanding of each other to really make well-informed decisions. But what are some of the things that uh, are often overlooked? Yeah, let me tell you the main uh, or some key results of the study that we did. We looked at $5 trillion of deals over 24 years, three different merger waves, um, over a trillion dollars of premiums. And we were very interested in the announcement effects. How did investors react to that announcement and how did those mm -hmm companies do over the course of a year. Uh, we peer adjusted the findings. And one of, what we found is 60% of deals are met with a negative market reaction and 40% of deals are met with a positive market reaction. Uh, but there are still CEOs and market observers that say, well, market reactions don't matter. You know, you don't judge the success of a deal on the short term change in the market price. So what we did is we tested that and we followed the positive market reaction portfolio over time and we followed the negative reaction portfolio. And if market reactions didn't matter, what should happen? They should both trend to zero and they don't. Positive market reaction portfolio stays strongly positive. The negative reaction portfolio stays strongly negative. So market reactions really matter. I'm going to get to what market reactions mean and then we'll talk yeah. about diligence because that's sure. what's happening right before you get there. Sure. Yep. Um, and then what we did is we de-averaged more because all M&A studies are on average. So mm -hmm. uh, we looked at the positives that stayed positive. And they did really well. Wow. They had a great return. Uh, and the negatives that stayed negative and two thirds of negative reaction companies stay negative. Uh, and for stock deals, it's closer to 75% that don't turn around. Those negative deals that started negative and stayed negative did really bad. And the difference between the two, what we call the persistent spread was 60 percentage points, a 60 wow. percentage, but wow. not 60%, 60 percentage point difference wow. in returns. It's huge. And so you know, as a as an executive or a market observer, you say, well, yeah, I would much rather have a positive market reaction than a negative one for sure. But because what do market reactions mean? It's a fundamental change in the growth value of your company. Hmm. Imagine you're a billion dollar acquirer and your hmm. share price takes a 10 percent hit. That's one hundred million dollars. And let's yeah. say that billion dollars, you can you can divide it between your the capitalized current performance. That's called five hundred million. And the other 500 million is future growth. Mm -hmm. That 10% hit in your share price, that 100 million is 100 million off that 500 million of future growth. It's a 20% hit to the growth value of your company. That's what market reactions are. It's a fundamental change in the growth value of the company. We all, you know, everybody says M&A should be about creating value. That's what we really mean. Are you changing the growth value of your company, positive or negative? And so your question on diligence then is, 
diligence cannot just be about a go or no go decision. Yeah. It's fundamentally about testing the assumptions that somebody's putting in that valuation model. Because that valuation model, that is your business plan, whether you like it or not, because you're <laughs> paying for it. And somebody knows those numbers, those synergy numbers. And um, so it's fundamentally about testing those assumptions, but also, and just as important, an early integration roadmap of what you're going to do once you announce the deal. I don't know how you do a valuation model without having a roadmap. Right. Right. What's the size of the synergies? The timing, some are going to come early, some are going to come a little bit later. What are the complexities of them? What are the one-time costs? No synergy comes for free. When you start worrying about that, after you announce a deal, that's got to be thought through so you can start your sign to close planning immediately after you've announced it because everybody's watching. You know, announcement day, that day when markets react. And it's not just markets, by the way. Yeah. It's customers, suppliers, your yep. employees. Yep. You know, you're bumping them down their hierarchy of needs. They yep. wonder, do I have a job? Right. Do I have yeah. to move? Are my yeah. even my day-to-day -day technology platforms are they changing? What's going to happen to my career path? So, all these stakeholders are listening. Regulators, so you have to be able to send a signal to markets and everyone that's listening that you have a plan. So, Mark, so before before we go down the five elements and other parts yeah. of the book, um, if you're a large uh, billionaire that builds rockets and electric vehicles and decided to get into I knew the social gonna media I knew business. it was going to go there. I knew it was going to go there. the social media <laughs> business. Uh, where, what, what would you make advice, uh, advice right? In a generic sense. That's in a, a generic sense. Because... There's no redundant CMO, CIO workforce, you know. I... <laughs> I, so <laughs> as I, as I cross my, as I cross my arm, I, I can't comment on specific but i can't talk about stock versus cash deals but that's a different yeah. but let me invert it let me invert it another way like a lot of what you're doing on the m a side actually got me thinking about how people were doing spacs right spacs are basically a form of m a right and we think about prepared acquire and a reactor and, and how we put this together i mean the due diligence process might be a little bit different for a spac right as opposed to a traditional m a because you've got to build pipe right if you don't have pipe on the back end, then you're kind of that's part of the due diligence, right? Would, would that be how you would read that? So I, I'm a first principles guy, so I'm going to stick to first principles, which is if you're putting up capital, it's got a cost. I don't care the vehicle it's coming from. If it's a mm -hmm. smart thing to do, you got to get that cost of capital return. Not just a, so think about a, a, a company just as a standalone. It's got its current operations today. So in diligence, you're testing what's the stability of its recurring revenues, but yep. then it's got this growth value. So you have to first decide, do I want to be even an investor in that company? Forget about paying a premium. Forget the pay, shiny objects. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, but if I'm going to pay a 20, 30 or 40% premium for that, I'm creating a brand new business performance problem that never existed before. And not only didn't it exist before, nobody ever expected. When you pay a 20 or 30% premium for a company, it's a shock to the system. And investors are expecting a plan. And it can't be, oh, it's going to be a little bit of growth in perpetuity. It's got to be a two to three year ramp up that shows that you can, that you can really justify that premium, whether, it, whether it's a SPAC or whether it's a publicly traded uh, acquire, regular, regularly publicly traded acquirer. Mark, you, you talk. Yeah, first, so, by the way, the question you had previously about the person involved in what he's doing, he's all about first principles. Um, all his all his decisions are based on that. Um, um, and he often speaks about that. Um, you, you mentioned important the importance of effective communication to shareholders, to, to stakeholders. Um, um, uh, what makes an effective communication? What are the what are the ingredients you need uh, to include? 
in that, in, especially the initial communication, in, in order to to ensure that the stakeholders have confidence and optimism in terms of one plus one is going to equal three. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll take you back to announcement day. So we think of announcement day that it serves three important functions, and uh, it is a lot about communication strategy if you've done the preparation to get there. So mm. the first big function is think of preparing for announcement day. Think like an investor. Um, so put your shoes and put, put yourself in the shoes of investors. So think of preparing for announcement day as your last stop in diligence. And for boards, it's the fundamental question is, how is this deal going to affect our share price and why? Mm. How is it going to affect the fundamental growth value of our company? Uh, the, the second function is not just investors, but everybody's listening. So everything you say is fodder for customers, suppliers, employees, regulators, and so understand competitors. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we've, we've had, uh, we had we had a large company once that said every time they announce a major deal, it's like a competitor parade going after their customers. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to serve you well. It's going to be eighteen totally. months over totally. there. Totally. Better deals, and not only yeah. that, but competitors will poach your best talent. They know who the best talent is. Totally. It's a right away, and so. You know, employees are wondering, do I stick this out or do I take a better a better deal? So we're communicating with employees, customers and suppliers. Suppliers are, are, are wondering, well, are they going to try to yep. do better deals now that, you know, gonna, uh, get procurement synergies off the bus? So they're, wor they're worried about that as well. And certainly regulators, because, you know, the time to start thinking about what you might have to divest is not when the regulators tell you. It's right. while you're thinking about the deal. Start thinking about the pieces you might have to divest and what it's going to what it's going to take and how much it's going to cost to separate those pieces. Separations are very expensive. You know, you're, you're, you're uh, untangling, you know, uh, a division from, from, from the company. So, and then the third function, and this is just, just as important as the others, culture starts an announcement. We position that really hard in the book. The employee experience has to start right after announcement day, because like I said, you're bumping them down their hierarchy of needs. And so they have a lot of questions. You have to acknowledge their concerns. You tell them what you can, but then you also tell them, you know, when you can tell them the other things they, they worry about, tell them what you can't tell them right away and time box those answers. If you're going to announce a new organizational structure in a month, announce the new organizational structure in a month, you're trying to, you're, you're sort of borrowing trust you haven't yet earned. So this is all, you know, wrapped up in how you think about, how we think about communications. I love the structured approach, right? I mean, this is not just like, you know, we're going to do a, you know, we're going to do a transactional deal. I mean, there's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of art. There's a lot, a lot of, of like experience, high finance. A lot I mean, of culture. This is, and yeah, I mean, and, and so the post-closed execution phase of this M&A process that you're talking about, I mean, this is, this is neglected. Why is this neglected? Right. Given well, the number of deals that are out there it's hard. and it, the deals it, that it, are failing, you know? Yeah. So, it's a great question. And uh, if you allow me, I'll take you through. So we position post-close execution as a series of transitions. And so you, if you haven't done the sign to close work that you need to do, you're not going to be able to make these transitions. But it's exactly. you're, going, you're going from this integration management office, which is this decision-making machine that you, that you launch right after announcement. That IMO has to go away and, and become business as usual. We're taking the organizational design work and that becomes talent selection and workforce transition. All the synergy planning that you've done, signed to close, all the initiatives and projects and owners and one-time costs, that has to then transition to uh, tracking and reporting. All the work you did in clean rooms around 
revenue synergies. Well, that has to go into the customer experience and your actual changes in go-to-market strategy. And finally, you know, all the work that you did in the employee experience has to then transition to culture and change. And so you're very clear. You don't just use this, the, the fluffy, funny word culture. It means something. It's broken into the real changes that different employee groups are going to face, how they're going to change, how work's going to change, um, et cetera. So, um, Post-close execution, again, very, it's structured. It's got to be because there are very clear issues that you've identified, signed to close, that you now have to operationalize quickly because that cost of cap capital clock is ticking on that, all that capital you've invested. Mark, my last question, putting the CEO aside, looking at these thousand plus deals, if you had to, it's a, if it, it's a table with three legs and each leg represents an executive line of business, is, is, is it the CHRO, CFO, CMO, the communication, the talent and the finances uh, leaders that have the strongest impact, whether it's going to be a positive outcome or negative, or it's a complete team sport and every line of business leader uh, needs to, needs to uh, you know, have skin in the game? It, it's a complicated question because if it's a significant deal that will be material to your share price, then you you have you don't have a lot of people under the tent early on because you want to manage leaks. That said, I'll tell you the things you don't want to hear. Uh, you don't want to hear, and these are things we've heard so many times over, over the years. Uh, you don't want to hear post announcement while you're doing the planning. You don't want an you want to hear an executive say, "I raised this before we did the deal." You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, I love you. That's a great synergy target. But I told you we couldn't do it, right? Like that you don't want to hear. And the other one, and this is the big one. And, you know, just from this conversation, this shouldn't be a surprise. You see a, like a head of HR sit back and they say, I'm just coming to terms with how much work this is going to be. Oh, my God. Right before close is not the time that, that you want to hear that. You want to be, you want people. Uh, uh, I'm so familiar with those phrases. Yes. You want that well before announcement. That's part of your diligence process. It's just how much change is going to be required. You know, the synergy between due diligence and change management impacts the outcome of these deals. I mean, if there's anything we learned here, this is amazing. So Mark, thank you so much. We're here with Mark Ciro, author of Synergy Solution and Deloitte's US lead for M&A and restructuring, a big, big, big practice. Follow him on Twitter at Mark L-S-I-R-O-W-E-R. Thank you for that. I can tell you there are tons of tech CEOs listening to this conversation. They're gonna know who to call. So thank yeah, you so absolutely. much for being here. Thank you, Ray and Vala. It's been a delight. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Happy Friday. Wow, Bala. <laughs> We're blown away. Purpose-led purpose marketing. Importance of adaptive, adaptive IT. We went from read-only to read-write to read-write-own web, web three. And M&As are hard. I mean, if you haven't lived through it, like if you haven't lived through it, I don't think... Most people have any idea how hard it is. And, and I'm not just talking about the numbers and the structures, but the emotional drain. Because, you know, most MAs, eventually you do have to make talent decisions. Um, and, and, and there are redundancies, especially if you're not acquiring a completely new muscle that you didn't have. If there's any sort of overlap, you have redundancies. So oh, yeah. if you're a growth company, maybe you can absorb that cost. But often that's not the case. So while you're thinking so hard about how to bring value to market, you're also making really difficult decisions. So it's it's uh, 
you know, it's, uh, you know, this is where the grays come from. This is, <laughs> if you've ever gone through one, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's going to war. It's going to battle. Uh, anyway, Ray, you're, uh, next week is episode 278. We just crossed our 850 interviews in the life of Disrupt TV at 854 is our current number. Next week, we're, I say that because we're getting close to 900. Uh, Anil uh, Sherian, AVP Strategy and Technology at Cognizant, will join us. We have Casey Coleman, a brilliant mind, Senior Vice President of Global Government Solutions at Salesforce. And a surprise guest we're going to announce somewhere during the middle of the week next week. So, Ray, your closing thoughts on, uh, on, on, on four extraordinary, extraordinary business leaders who are on episode 277. You know, I feel like this is the part of car talk where like they do stump the chump. Um, <laughs> but hey, no, look, the theme here, if everyone figured out, was really about transformation. And what we've seen is really the CIO and the CMO, that's one transformation to get work done, right? And it's very, very important. That critical piece between IT and business leaders is something that we're seeing at our personal scale. That's important. But we're also seeing a massive transformation in terms of this Web 2 to Web 3.0 infrastructure. And what Sandy was sharing was really just just the tip of the iceberg of all these massive changes that we're going to see uh, as part of what we call the $20.7 trillion metaverse economy uh, when we size that. But along the way to make this happen, you gotta pay for these things and mergers and acquisitions are gonna be the way to get here. So we see different things, like right? you do the deal, you know, you do something new and organically, or you work together actually to make this happen. And that's what we learned today here on Disrupt TV. So back to you, Val. Incredible. Well, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We thank you for watching and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.